So today we have something of an epic or an odyssey. We're going in and out of a bunch of cities today. Damascus, Istanbul, Thessaloniki, Budapest, Oslo. But this story isn't just about these cities. It's really about what happens when you go on a journey that changes your life and the lives of the people around you. It's a little glimpse into what being a refugee is like, how crossing a border can be a very different experience based on what passport you hold, and, you know, how love makes the world go round. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Let's start where, where do you want to start? Let's start back in April. This is producer Persia Verlin. Sunday, the 12th of April, 2015, which is Orthodox Easter, and we're in Istanbul, Turkey. So the party was um, an Orthodox Easter party. This is Ellie Gardner. So I'm Ellie Gardner, and I am a freelance photojournalist and filmmaker. So my Greek-American friend was known for making this amazing lamb. I was actually traveling to the United States the next day, and, you know, was in the middle of packing the bags, thought about not even going, but it was this beautiful sunny day, and there was this lamb. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna make an effort and go. She lived far away. I went to take a bus there. The bus never came. There were tons of people in line. It was a big tulip festival that day. So I ended up having to take a taxi, which I never do, and finally made it there, um, and there was no lamb. Ellie was raised in North Dakota and had been living in Istanbul for four months at this point. So I didn't get to try the lamb. But she sticks around at this party. She was still pretty new to Turkey. So her friends tell her, we want you to wait. There's this guy you have to meet. And so all I knew about this guy was Ziad's from Syria. He makes the best shisha in Istanbul and he's coming and you have to stick around for it. He worked at a hotel with a small cafe in the front and he was known to prepare a very good shisha. So when he walked in... You know, he did the typical walk around, shake everyone's hand as the hosts, you know, made introductions. And I shook his hand and uh, he had a lot of hair gel, a very like crisp white shirt. And, you know, he was smiley and sweet and quiet. So we really didn't even talk much. Uh, He didn't make such a, I guess you could say like a strong first impression. He seemed like a nice guy, but I didn't go home thinking about thinking about this guy I met. And so that was that. But some time goes by, and meanwhile, Ellie, as a journalist, is scouting for stories. Because I don't speak Arabic and Ziad spoke English, I reached out to him actually just to talk and, you know, get some general ideas about what was going on for the Syrian community in Istanbul. You know, living in Turkey, it's a country where three million Syrians live, and as a journalist, you try to understand what's happening in the place you live. And Syrians and other refugees in Turkey always call Turkey like a station. It's just a station. It's a place where people wait to figure out where to go next. So in September 2015, Ellie messages Ziad on Facebook to see if he has any story ideas. And that's when he told me that he had decided to go to Europe. I'm leaving in a few days, by the way. I'm living to Norway. This is Ziad. My name is Ziad Al-Taha. I'm from Syria, 29 years old. I didn't want to do it the illegal way, so I tried every legal way possible, but it was too hard, Um, impossible. So the two meet at Ziad's cafe in downtown Istanbul. They sit outside sipping tea, and that's when Ziad tells Ellie his story. Uh, I grew up in a small village in the countryside of Aleppo. It's called Anashama, which means uh, the generous people. Uh, we are uh, nine in the family. I have five brothers and uh, three sisters. I'm number two. I have uh, one sister that is older than me. I grew up in a village where there were no walls between the houses. You go to visit a friend, you go like through your neighbor's house, and you're across. You just say hi, hello, and you continue. My mom loves her flowers, so you see the house as like a garden. 
We sleep um, on, on mattresses on the floor during the night and uh, during the day we take them away and we make the room as like a living room where we like watch TV and uh, yeah, if we have a guest so they can like, come and sit in. Uh, I stayed in the village until I grew, graduated from the high school and my first time leaving the village was when I went to the university in Damascus. Well, in, in the high school, I always dreamed of studying English, to be an English teacher. Uh, the English literature is like uh, it's four years, but it took me seven years. The last two years, I had to fail the exams so I don't uh, graduate. Because once you graduate, you have to join the army. And uh, at that time, this was the last thing on my schedule like to, to join the army. That was like a red line for me, no way. As the situation in Syria turned from demonstrations to an all-out war, Ziad was dragging his college education out as long as he could and working at a hotel in Damascus to support his family. So in 2013, when a long-term guest at his hotel offered Ziad a job in Dubai, he jumped at the opportunity. But the offer wasn't real. And through a series of events, Ziad ended up in the countryside of southern Turkey alone and with nothing on him but his passport and a few Turkish lira in his pocket. And that's how he ended up in Istanbul. He got a job working at a hotel and started building a new life for himself. Oh, wow. Wait, but I thought, can't you not work as a Syrian without papers in Turkey? Syrians can work in Turkey, just informally. To get papers, it's a really arduous process very few employers go through. Because not only do you need a residency and work permit, your employer also needs to prove that no Turkish national could be found for that job. Yeah, you can stay, you can work, but don't make any troubles. If your boss doesn't pay you, we don't care. Don't make any noise. Just accept it and move on. Ziad ended up working at this small hotel from 2013 to 2015. He was cleaning, cooking, and working as the receptionist. He told us he was basically the only employee running the eight-room inn. He picked up Turkish in about five months and began building a name for himself as the best shisha guy in town. But as you can probably imagine, he was overworked and had no personal time. Uh, the time was just something like I lost control of when I was in Turkey, like because I was working like 24 hours. A friend uh, once joked about it. He said Ziad works eight days a week. Then uh, a friend of mine, he came to Norway, he made it. And after one year, he came back to Turkey visiting. So I told him, like, uh, what's life in Norway now? Like, why, why did you go there? Like, he said uh, that he's working in a hotel as well, working for eight hours. I said, what? Eight hours? Like, why don't you work more? He said, this is the law. You cannot work more. And this is like the turning point for me. When my friend came and he told me that, and he said, now it's so easy to get to Norway. So Zia decided to do it. Now, let's fast forward in our timeline. Ellie and Ziad are having tea, and that's when Ziad told her. He told me his plan. Normally, if everything goes well, it takes like one week. I, we have to spend one day in Greece. The next day we'll move to Macedonia, from Macedonia to Serbia, from Serbia all across the border to Hungary, from Hungary to Austria. And from there, I can go by train to Sweden, from Sweden, another train to Norway. This will be my last stop. First, it was just like total shock that he was going. I mean, he was, you know, on and off the phone, kind of waiting for a message from the smuggler. And and that's when I asked. Asked me if uh, it's okay that she joins me on the journey to, to film it. So in September of 2015, Ziad planned a journey to Norway to seek asylum, to start a new life, like his Syrian friend had done before him. And Ellie was going to document it. After the tea conversation, he had a goodbye party in Istanbul. So I filmed that. And then... Um, Where are we right now and what's about to happen? Well, for now we are still in Istanbul. But in two days we will be in a totally different country. And this is day one. From Istanbul, we took the bus to, to Izmir. That's a western port city in Turkey, on the Aegean Sea. 
From there, they would take a boat to Greece. Ziad had uh, set up a WhatsApp group with a lot of his friends, a lot of those people I had met at the Easter party, and a lot of the people that were at the goodbye party. So we were all on there swapping messages. People were, you know, sending him sweet little emojis, wishing him luck, thinking of him. In Esmir, we we were going to pay the smuggler, and uh, we had to wait. The smugglers don't give you, you know, a nice itinerary, so Ziad had no idea where he was going or what Greek island he would end up on. And me trying to do it safely and with as little money as possible, to be honest, um, we decided that when he got to the Greek island, assuming he got there, um, he would send a pin, you know, like drop a pin in WhatsApp, and then I would get there as fast as I could. And then things went quiet for, I think it was a day or two. It was nerve-wracking. I was nervous. You just, you can't do anything. You can only wait. In 2015, it's estimated that around 800 refugees died crossing the Aegean Sea. Um, the smuggler called us the same night we arrived. He said, get ready, we are, we are leaving today. Someone will come to you, you follow him, and uh, he's going to ask for the money. You give him the money, and and someone else will take you from there. So from one point to another, like taxis waiting, and then another taxi would come, take us, until we came to this truck. Uh, it was dark. I don't know how many people were there, but I knew that there were many, or the truck was too small. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't possible like to like to move your body like you are like stuck some people started uh, fainting we like, were knocking on the doors like on the truck telling them to stop we almost like broke the, the truck uh, we all agreed that we cannot continue in this car no way so uh, he stopped and he told us to wait they will uh, arrange another car for us the other car came and we continued until we arrived to the boat that was waiting for us on the beach. So there were two smugglers there. Now we knew that smugglers don't drive the boats, so they usually choose one of the refugees to drive the boat. They, they gave him like a ride <laughs> for five minutes just to show him like this is the engine, like this is off, this is on. Right, left. At this time, smugglers were offering free passage for anyone who volunteered to drive the boat. And so he agreed to do that so he didn't have to pay, I think it was 1,500 euros on average that most people were paying to make that crossing. Uh, we got all in the boat. I didn't know like, uh, that it would fit all those people. Like, I thought they would have another one. Like, there's no way that this one will fit for all of us but somehow it did <laughs> or they made it do um, so they started like sending them the women the kids first and then we we came in we, we could see the the Greek island from the Turkish side but inside, like, we hear all those stories about people who drowned um, on the sea. So you have, like, all these thoughts in your mind. But somehow, like, you try not, like, to think about it loud or to say it. Some were crying. Um, yeah. You know, kids, like, women, some, the men were so scared, but too proud to cry. We spent three hours on the sea. Around 10, 10.30, we were in, in Chios, in Greece. We were welcomed by the Greek coast guards. They had to damage the, the boat, so smugglers don't reuse it. And they guided us. They told us like just to follow them. They told us that they will guide us to the port. The first thing I did when I arrived, I messaged my brothers and Ellie. And so I took a passenger ferry. It was about a 30-minute ride. So, yeah, we went to the police station. They told us to wait here. The bu A bus will come and take us to the camp. 
When I walked through passport control, you know, I didn't know where this camp was. I didn't have a map. But there were just dozens of people sitting around waiting. A bus pulled up, you know, driven by a Greek guy. All the people traveling got on the bus, and the bus went straight straight up to that transit camp. There was, there was an informal system in place. They were busing these immigrants as fast as they could out of the main touristic areas and getting them up on the hill at the transit camp next to a cemetery out of sight where they could, you know, give them some cold sandwiches and give them a paper and hopefully send them on their way. She came like uh, just a few hours after we, we arrived. I was so happy to see her. She gave me a big hug. And she was like uh, crying, like you can't tell, like there were like some tears in her eyes. But for us, we didn't. Um, we needed like the, like the the positive energy. We needed like to laugh, to make jokes. So I introduced Ali uh, to to everyone. Ziad was making the trip actually with a couple of friends. There was Ahmed, a close friend of his from Istanbul. Ahmed uh, was very smart. He was in the hotel the first day, reaching into his bag for a book, you know, and the book had gotten wet on the raft, and he was, like, trying to dry it and read it, so... And there was Saif, another friend from Istanbul. He's, you know, he's a bigger guy, broad shoulders. He has a goatee. He, he puts it in, like, a little braid and then pins it with a bobby pin. Abdurrahman. Saif's cousin. The supermodel guy. It's like you just slept in a parking lot. And your hair is perfect. To make sure that uh, <laughs> our hair like, looks good as well. And then three others that they met kind of on the way and decided to travel as a group. There was Hashem, the refugee who drove the boat from Izmir to Kios, and Manhal. Manhal is from Hama. He loves to sing. He would often like take his shirt and tie it around his head and, you know, be clapping and singing and leading songs. And finally, Asa. Asa, I thought she was beautiful and hysterical and she didn't speak a word of English. She was like our like little sister. She's very sweet, although she curses a lot all the time. So that was the group. Uh, Ziad, Ahmed, Saif, Hashim, Abdurrahman, Manhal, Azza, and Ellie. It's September 5th, two days after Ziad left Izmir. Right now, they're in this informal camp in Kios, a Greek island. We stayed in the camp for one night, and a bus came, and they took us to the city. They told us, like, a big boat, a huge one, will come and take everybody. And that was the biggest boat I've ever seen. It was huge. There were cars on that boat. We grabbed a quick bite to eat and then we boarded the ferry for Kavala. It's like Titanic, but I hope the end of this will not be like Titanic. And I remember like being on the ferry. It's funny, when I was a teenager, uh, I would get anxious sometimes when I would spend the night away from home. That sensation came to me that night on the ferry. And before, I was not nervous about the journey. I was looking forward to learning from it and witnessing whatever Ziad was about to go through. But I remember we got on the ferry, and it wasn't seasickness, you know? It was that, like, same anxious, like, nauseous feeling that I used to get when I would go spend the night away from home when I was younger. And I remember going to the bathroom and just feeling completely overwhelmed, you know, not knowing how many days we would be on the road, what these guys were about to encounter, how was I going to document it? <sighs> she was worried more than, she was worried more than me. Day three. From the Greek island of Kavala, the group takes a bus to another island, Thessaloniki. Uh, on those bus rides, yeah, I would often sit with Ziad and, you know, talk to him and I'd ask him, why aren't you singing? Why aren't you dancing? You don't sing? You don't dance? And he would be like, no, no, no. From Thessaloniki, they took another two-hour bus to a small town near the Macedonian border. So the Greek-Macedonia border where 
they cross doesn't look like a border. So the bus drops you off at the gas station and then you kind of follow the crowd of people down to an open field where there's a train track. And then a kilometer or two away is the border, the official place where a car pulls up and you hand over a passport. You know, countries were allowing this flow of people it's arbitrary, you know? There's a field on one side that's Greece and a field on the other side that's Macedonia, and the train track looks the same on both sides, and it's a big deal to cross it. We're informed that the, the border between Greece and Macedonia is closed right now, so we had to wait until the border is open. There's some police officers from both countries on either side of the border, and there was kind of those crowd control metal gates And so the idea was that you would organize in groups of 50 and go through these gates in an orderly fashion. But, I mean, Ziad and the guys, they went down to the border, they talked to the officials, they got a number, they organized a group of 50 and were very formal and tried to play by the rules and be very respectful and went back and waited. And then everyone said, oh, they're not following the rules. Oh, it's closed. Now it's open. It's closed. It's open. So... It was really confusing. After midnight, we decided to sleep. So we find a place outside. We need just like to rest for a few hours. We were like exhausted. And so we lay on the floor and suddenly the guy at the border called. And then at 3 a.m. like everyone was waking up, throwing off, you know, their blankets or their jackets, putting their bags together and like racing to the border. There's so many people there. Like all what you see is like the dust the air and the smoke. Some of the people who had been kind of camping out there, maybe to stay warm or to prepare some food, had started small fires. And one of those fires had caught the field on fire. There was one woman who was in the larger group that Ziad had formed, and she had like this really tiny baby. She was from the same area that Ziad was from, so they had the same dialect and would speak to each other, and it reminded Ziad of his family. And the woman was holding the baby, and so, like, calm and gently, like, just holding it, trying to kind of keep the smoke away from the child's mouth, and then safe, tracked down this little mask. So, like, the mom took the mask that almost covered the baby's whole face, and she put it over the baby, like, to keep the baby safe, just that, like, protective instinct. Ellie was with us, but she said that she will just turn back and go to the gate so she would wait for us on the other side. I, from the beginning, had decided that I would cross the borders legally with my passport, that I didn't want to do anything illegally in order to tell this story. I, you know, I have this giant camera, and I definitely stick out, and I didn't feel comfortable going into that crowd. I just felt like it was too dangerous. It was so crowded, noisy, people were screaming. It was too dark. You cannot, almost you can't see nothing. Uh, when I was in the crowd, like, somehow, like, at some point, I got, like, disappointed. It's it's so hard, like, I didn't expect it to be so hard, so... I don't know, like, at some point I thought, this is not... This is not going to work, like, there's no way we'll, we'll make it. After many hours of pushing, uh, being hit by the police, and pushed by, like, many people... <laughs> uh, we made it. We passed the border. It was a pretty brutal night, and everyone was tired. It took them many, many hours to get across. And there was just so many people, you know, vying for the buses, the trains, the taxis, like, all at the same time because they were coming over in a wave that they just jumped into the first, I believe they took a taxi um, that could get them to Serbia. Macedonia isn't a big country. Ziad and his group took taxis to get to the Serbian border. The drive was only about two hours. Ellie followed after, in her own taxi, and they all met on the Macedonian side. So the Macedonian-Serbian border was um, pretty simple in that they were just able to walk across. Uh, we walked for a few hours, 
and then we arrived to this Serbian town. We were asking about the the bus station. So we took a bus to Belgrade. From there, they looked for a taxi to get to the Hungarian border. We are trying to find a taxi. We are 11 people and the taxi is allowed to take four. So we need three taxis. So he's talking now to the taxi driver. They will, um, he will bring three taxis to take us to the, to the border, to the Hungarian border. Sorry. So the guy is saying that the, the price would be 200, nothing below that. Yeah. And uh, he's just waiting for yes or no, so somebody needs to call him and confirm. Three taxis, yeah? Yes. Three, three taxis and it will be 200 per, per car. 200 euros? Is that normal? Yeah. So through a mixture of fear of police repercussions because they're carrying refugees and laws of supply and demand, taxis were jacking their prices way up. At this point in the journey, Ziad and Ellie have gone from Turkey, across the Aegean Sea, to Greece, crossed over to Macedonia, through Serbia, and are now near the Hungarian border, on their way to entering the European Union. It's September 8th, six days after Ziad left Istanbul. Okay. We are at the border now. It's so cold here, it's freezing. We are getting ready to cross the border. <laughs> the Serbian-Hungarian border. We are all across to Hungary now. Hopefully there will be no police. If there is a police, maybe we'll have to wait till the morning. To the light. <sighs> I'm worried now. First time. Was it? Yeah, if the police catch me there, it will be a problem. Well, this this border is the most difficult one because we will enter Europe and it will be the first Euro- European country that we will get in. So the group is leaving now. Ah, okay, we have to leave now. Okay, let's the group is leaving, we have to leave. We started the walk at night. When we were walking, like we hear like some sounds like between the trees. And some, of the, most of them were in Arabic, actually. So they they would uh, tell us, uh, "Oh, come, we we have a car, and we will charge you this and this. Like, we'll we'll uh, drive you directly to Budapest. Like, come, we we have the this car, and like we drive you anywhere you want. And uh, we have someone who speaks Arabic, so just come and don't, like don't be afraid. We're here to help you." We didn't trust any of that. We, we don't see faces. We just hear like uh, the sounds. That was that was so scary. Uh, so we decided to stay together no matter what and keep going. Uh, we were following the JBS the whole time to the first town where we can take a taxi. We made to the to the Hungarian town after midnight. Mm, so we were walking. It was like a dead city. Like you don't see anybody. Uh, you don't see anybody in the street. Um, so we were looking for a taxi, and then we we found one. The driver came to us. They knew that people are coming, so they were waiting. <laughs> they put us in the back seat, and they covered us with a blanket. The plan was like they drive us to Budapest. Well, they drove us for a few hours. I was so cold in that taxi. I, the door was a bit open and I was sitting by the door. And like I was so scared to ask to close the door. Like, I, I, I just wanted to finish. Like, I, I don't care about the call. It's fine. We put our lives in their hands. We, we don't see the road in front of us. And yeah, at some point they stopped and they said, okay, we, we cannot drive longer. We are done here. I said, but this is not Budapest. Like, it's, it's outside the city. I looked at the JBS and uh, it was far. Like, there were no buses to Budapest. So I said, like, you cannot leave us here. They said, it's illegal for us to drive in the city. So we cannot uh, go further. Sorry, you have to find another local taxi that can drive you. We got so angry. We had to pay them before we drive. So they had their money already. They drove us to a gas station. We took another taxi. It's day seven. 
On the back of a long night of walking, and then struggling with exorbitantly priced taxis, Zied and the others made it to Budapest. So I, I crossed and waited in Hungary, and I took a train to Budapest, so... You must be so tired. How are you? And we met at the train station. They were eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. We did like some warm food to warm us for the, for the next step. And then we, we found like the ticket office where we bought our tickets to, to Vienna. We got that, it was, uh, it was really cheap. Somehow it seemed like um, too easy. <laughs> because like we, are, we were used like to pay hundreds, like to taxis. And then suddenly a train, a train ticket from Budapest to Vienna. It was like around 30 euros or something. Crossing into Hungary was very symbolic because it was the first entry into the EU. And a lot of people kind of saw it as the border that once you're into Hungary, you can breathe a little bit easier. That, you know, getting on that train, getting to Austria, getting over to Germany isn't going to be quite as difficult. It's actually once you're in the Schengen travel zone, um, which includes most European countries, there is no passport control. So the risk of getting caught or something bad happening were considerably less. So in Budapest, it was really strange. We were in the station and like all walking around, kind of taking, you could say, quiet time and charging phones, sending messages. And I was just like walking down by the ticket office and like I heard some people screaming. So I go to the ticket office and like I see Hashim inside of it and a whole bunch of other people who are traveling. And it's very clear that these people are refugees and migrants. And there were four uh, police officers standing outside that ticket office. So the ticket office is like a small room and there were a couple dozen people inside. Someone said they're coming to fingerprint us. You know, there was a lot of stuff flying around. Then people started um, protesting. We want freedom. Like we don't want to stay here. We just want to. We we, we just want to leave Hungary. We don't want to stay here. We didn't come to stay here. And the other guys were by this point I had told them where I was via WhatsApp and they were staying clear of the office because they were worried if they came down there perhaps the police would also you know hold them we were like do we get on the train do we wait for Hashim we were all freaking out and then suddenly one of the guys points at me and he says you come he was standing next to Hashim so I asked the police if I could pass they let me pass I went into the room you know, I just didn't know what to do, so I tried to talk calmly. I said, I don't understand the situation, like, but please tell me, is there something I can do? And he said, can you please call UNHCR and tell them what's happening at this train station? And I said, yes. I left the ticket office. I went outside on my cell phone, and I called the UNHCR office in Budapest. They said, thank you for calling. They took down a little information. As far as I know, no one showed up on scene and identified themselves as someone from UNHCR. I don't know if at all I influenced that situation. I tend to think I did not. Our train was leaving in a few minutes uh, when Hashim um, was released with the others. And, yeah, no explanation. They stood back from their intimidating postures, you know, in front of the door, and everyone just, like, bolted out of there, running to, you know, the platforms where the trains leave. And we got on the train. And as we got on the train and rode out, you know, the same uniformed officers were there, cross-armed on the platforms, just, like, watching the trains leave. Uh, how, how do I describe it? Like, it was, like, big relief for all of us. We made it through Hungary, so there is no like risk anymore. Like there is no fear of the police anymore, and there is no like there is no pushing. There is no running. Come have a seat now. So after three days of sleeping outdoors, tonight we'll have bed, hot shower, and sleep. We'll have enough sleep tonight. This is day eight. 
we get out of the train at Vienna and it was just getting dark. I remember the sky was still a little blue and there's people everywhere, but, you know, not uniformed police officers. Like, it's like you leave Budapest to cross-armed police officers and then you pull up to Vienna and it's like volunteers, clothes, hot food, where do you need, let me help you find your train, where do you want to go? Abdurrahman was going to Germany, so we said goodbye to him. Azza was picked up by her brother, so she left, and uh, Hashem did as well. Metsaif, Menhal, Eli, and me went to see Hannah. Uh, the guys had a friend in Vienna who had agreed to let us stay at her flat. Uh, it was a it was very nice like surprise to to see like um, that she had already invited some of her friends there and they made us dinner. Uh, it was so nice like they they were so warm, welcoming. Uh, it felt just so good to be at home. <laughs> I got a room to myself that night, and I remember Ziad slept on the floor. Finally, warm bed. <laughs> you say you sleep well on the ground? Yeah, I feel it's better. Sometimes I'm in Istanbul. I take the mattress and I put on the floor and I sleep. Then the next morning, um, Ahmad had really wanted to kind of celebrate this last day together because Ahmad was going to stay there. Um, before continuing to Germany. Everybody sit down. Ahmad and Hannah made us a Syrian breakfast. Um, had even gone out and found a Turkish market where he was able to find like Syrian cheese and products. And so we shared this breakfast with Hannah, her roommates, and the four guys um, before we all said goodbye that day. We walked around Vienna just a little bit. In Vienna, like, there was definitely a different energy, like, I noticed the guys spent a little bit more time, you know, getting ready in the morning. Ziad ironed his jeans. Like, who irons their jeans? I don't even iron my blouses. But, um, it, you know, Safe's shoes were wet, so he was, like, blow-drying his shoes that morning. You know, everyone was... There was, like, a, a spirit in the air of, like, a new beginning or a fresh start. And they also wanted to, like, just go out and walk around town, see things. You know, so they would, like, stop next to, like, these giant statues and take selfies. And they just, um, I guess the word that day when I was talking to them was free. Like, they actually felt or tasted, like, a, something of freedom in that, in that day being there. This was day nine, and they had made it. After journeying across 12 cities, this was the home stretch. From Austria, and the borders were open. You can take a train, a bus, to any other country, like no troubles at all. The Odyssey was over. Everyone was going their separate ways. And that, we thought, was the end. But there's so much more. I did like a final interview in Austria, not knowing if I would go to Norway. You know, I needed to like crunch some numbers, think about this story, get back to editors who I had been talking to and think about, you know, is it worth it to go up to Norway? How much is that going to cost? And what more can I show? The thing was, is like, I don't feel like he was like incredibly open with me, right? Or sharing some of the difficult things he went through that I thought would help make the story more impactful because it takes time to like come down from the adrenaline and to actually feel safe, believe you're safe, and then start talking again. So this day I had hoped that we would have that opportunity. And instead, Ziad was really nervous. He just kept repeating the same thing and was like really nervous on camera and like fixed his hair and like tried to like look really nice. You know, I was kind of frustrated. I'm like, I need you to talk. I might not be able to come to Norway. If I'm going to tell a story, you need to talk. You know, this was the frustration. <laughs> before I leave, um, before I leave Vienna, I was kind of like sad that she's not joining like, for this, this part. Like, uh, I don't know, somehow like I felt like she's, uh, she's part of the journey, you know. How would it, uh, how would it be without her? 
without like uh, <laughs> her like uh, being there with her with her camera like asking so many questions curious about what's next <laughs> and i would say for me i don't know i was still processing everything we were in the station in austria and i was going to get on the train to the airport so i hugged him goodbye i wished him luck and i told him thank you so much for sharing this with me and you know i wish you all the best from vienna it was uh, it was quite easy i took a train from from vienna to to munich in germany uh, and there manhal got his ticket to to amsterdam I continued to Sweden. I went to see my cousin. And it was in Istanbul that I had reviewed enough and said, you know what, there is a good story to tell here. And this is an important story. And it's not a dramatic story, but this is the story of so many young immigrant men living in Europe. And I need to go to Norway. And when she said that she's, she was going to be in Oslo, and that's for sure, uh, it gave me something to look forward to. Like I, I got so excited that she will be there on the other side and bought the ticket um which was around 200 euro round trip um from Istanbul to Oslo just as a quick point of reference that flight took Ellie four hours and cost her about 240 US dollars it took Ziad nine days and cost about 2,800 US dollars in smuggler fees buses taxis and trains to get from Istanbul to Oslo So Ellie flies over to finish the story. She waits for Ziad at the Oslo train station on September 16th, almost two weeks after they first started their journey together. When I was in Norway waiting for him, so I got there the day before he got there. All what I wanted at that point is like to give her a big hug. Yeah, of course, it's like you want to hug and welcome him to his new country, but you also have to film, so I film. And yeah, he like, you know, gets off the train and walks out the platform and we get inside the station and then I'm like, how are you? And I hug him. It's weird when it's just us. There's yeah. like no other people to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it would naturally be different, you know, like when you're with someone, especially like woman and man, uh, and you're in a group, it's one thing. Then suddenly you're alone and there's no group and... If you're a woman who's attracted to men and you're a man who's attracted to a woman and then you're suddenly alone, like there's an energy shift. Like whether you're attracted to that person or not or whether they're attracted to you, it's just like gender dynamics. And so like there was definitely um, a different feeling there. It was me and him and no one else. And uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else you want me to say. Whew. It was so nice uh, like to see her like to have like somebody waiting for you and I kind of like felt something but uh, I was not sure I didn't have the courage to share and I tried not to show although it was hard like sometimes I like tried to hold her hand or like uh, like take as many pictures with her as possible Um, what happens typically when you arrive in a country is like you go turn yourself in to the police right away and file for asylum. I told her about him. Um, I'm going to see my friend in the south and uh, I would love to visit him before I um, go to the police station. This is the same friend, his name is Saddam, who had visited Ziad in Istanbul and is the reason he wanted to come to Norway in the first place. She said, uh, well, if you don't mind, I would like to join you and uh, we can do the interview there that was a decision that uh, changed everything we were in the bus to Christian Sand and at some point she fell asleep on my shoulder that felt that felt so good so I put my arm so she can rest on my arm um, so I was playing with her hair and like putting her to sleep and at that point I knew exactly how I feel from from that point 
I knew that Ellie will not be the journalist anymore. She is more than that. I fall in love with her. We arrived to Christian Sun. We didn't talk about it at all, as if it didn't happen, but it did. It was so hard that night to to fall asleep and like just like thinking of what happened in the bus and like many memories from from the journey. Next morning we woke up. It was a terribly rainy day. And we did that final interview that was like two, three hours long. And then I packed my bag and flew home. And the next day I went to the police station in Oslo where I registered myself. And then I started my asylum or I started my refugee process. I remember leaving Norway after just that day with him when we did the final interview and messaging someone and saying like, I love Ziad, I care so much for him, like I feel like he's family now or something and just feeling like, it sounds so strange after this like terrible thing and all the things I saw, like I just was like like overflowing like with like love and gratefulness. And I mean, looking back clearly, I was in love in the moment, like no, I wasn't admitting I was in love. Like, I had a story to get out. Ziad was in Norway. I had a life back in Istanbul that I had to get to. Uh, So I went back to Istanbul, and then it was, like, this mad dash to try to, like, sell the story, tell the story, get it out there somehow. And in that time, like, so much was going on. We kept in touch on WhatsApp, Messenger, um, Skype. You know, at first, I think staying in touch with Ziad was in my mind, like my journalistic obligation. And then at some point it became like, wow, I just kind of like sending him a message and telling him to have a nice day. And then it just grew from there. I was sharing almost like everything of the process of uh, where I am, what's next, what will happen. And she was also sharing from her like trips, from some of her daily life. I don't know. Like, I think for a long time, like I enjoyed talking to him, but I didn't take it serious I mean like how was I actually going to end up with this guy he was younger than me he you know was a different religion than me he lived in a different place than me he didn't have a job he couldn't travel I mean all those logical things like you look for maybe in a partner like we did not have that I'm also taller than him so we can add that to the list and there was like a lot more reasons why we couldn't be together and by the time we like admitted to having feelings for each other, um, we talked about those out loud, like all those things I just said and more about all of our differences. And then it was like, well, is that a problem for you? Does that matter? No. Okay, me either. Okay, so now what do we do? It's like we we suffered a lot actually. Like in this period, like we stopped talking for a few days just to figure out our feelings. But every time we stop talking, we come back and like we miss each other more and we want to talk more. And the feelings, instead of like disappearing, you no, know, they get bigger and bigger. And I didn't tell her I love you in those five months and neither she did. Uh, but uh, instead of that, I would tell her I hate you. And she says, I hate you too. A good friend of mine who's a photographer was invited to speak at a festival in Oslo and I hadn't seen her in a long time and so I took it as a sign that I was supposed to go to Norway to see my friend and then go see this Yad guy and figure out who he really is and what I wanted from him. So (laughs) I was nervous. I was really nervous. I remember talking to him a lot before I came. I remember I told him, I'm just going to let you take the lead. I'm not going to kiss you like... Just, we'll see what's comfortable. Like, we were both really nervous. I was waiting on the station when the train came. It was the station where we said goodbye last time. It felt like the time was going so slow. Before she comes, she had already told me which car she will be in. So I was sure that I'm, I'm there, like in front of the right one. So when the train stopped and people were coming out, I was looking and... 
I didn't see her. Like, where is she? My heart was beating so fast. Like, how's that possible? Like, where, where is she? Where is she? I see him first. He's like freaking out looking for me. Like, he can't find me. Like, he's going up and down the platform. And suddenly someone called me from behind. Yeah. So I turned around and uh, here she was standing there with her bags. And he looks at me. So like, he walks towards me and I go up to him and I took my hand and I put it like in the collar of his shirt, you know, like how you grab the top of a collar. So I like put my hand in the collar of his shirt and I kissed him. <laughs> I did exactly what I promised him I wouldn't do. I mean, he kissed me back, but um, yeah, then we walked to Saddam's place. The same friend that influenced him to come here. On the way, we stopped more than 20 times to look at each other, to kiss, to like smile and laugh and um, tell her I love you for the first time. <laughs> Okay, what's the new Habibti? <laughs> um, so I found out just a few weeks ago that I was accepted to a master's program here in Norway, which is amazing because it means that I will get two-year residency here in Norway and can actually build a life with Norway as my base. For the last two and a half years, due to visa restrictions, Ellie was only able to visit Ziad sporadically, a couple weeks here and there. She lived her life out of Istanbul, traveling often for work and to see Ziad. Now that Ellie has been accepted into a master's program for global development, they can both live, work, and study in Mandal, a town at the very southern tip of Norway. Yeah, wait, uh, I, what do you do, actually? I work in a, in a daycare. In a daycare? Yeah. How old are the kids? Three to five. That's so amazing. Cute. Yeah, I love them. Like, every day is more exciting more than the day before. Um, if you like home, <laughs> um, if you like uh, loved and uh, needed somehow. I think we're good. Anything else you want to add? Uh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. And I'm looking forward to sharing my life with you. Well, I am already sharing it, but to share more. <laughs> the rest of it. This episode was produced by myself, Persia Verlin, and Hiba Fisher, with editorial support by Alex Atak, Dina Bailut, Bella Ibrahim, and Mayada Khazala. Sound design by Mohamed Khaizat. A huge thank you to Ellie Gardner and Ziad Al-Taha for sharing their story with us, as well as upwards of 20 hours of recordings from their two-week journey together. If you want more of their story, go down to the show notes of this episode for a link to photos and videos on our website at kerningcultures.com. If you want to hear more stories like this, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on to get notifications when new episodes come out. Thanks for listening. Until next time.